Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. Welcome back to The Motivated Mind, a top 100 health podcast, thanks to each of you. This is episode 375, and I'm your host, Scott Lynch. Thanks so much for listening. If I've brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe or follow button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook and let me know what you want to hear more of. And please be sure to share the podcast. Today we have another special guest that joins the pod, Dan Heath. He's the co-author of four New York Times bestsellers, Decisive, Switch, Made to Stick, and The Power of Moments. These books have sold over 3 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 33 languages. He's also the host of the new podcast, What It's Like to Be. Dan is also a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, which supports social entrepreneurs. Previously, Dan worked as a researcher and case writer for Harvard Business School. In the late 1990s, Dan co-founded an innovative publishing company called Thinkwell, which for almost 25 years has been producing a line of online college textbooks that feature video lectures from some of the country's top professors. Dan has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BA from the Plan 2 Honors Program from the University of Texas at Austin. Dan and I dive into the inspiration and concept behind his new podcast, What It's Like to Be. We dive into his contrarian and inquisitive mindset, sifting through its origins, the simulation of authenticity, and how it underscores the necessity for genuine dialogue and connections in our world, harnessing the potency of purposeful living and shaping our mindset for enhanced happiness and outcomes, creativity and discipline, and how they reinforce each other, Dan's approach to writing that has propelled him to achieve four New York Times bestsellers, how to identify diminishing marginal returns, and recognizing when a project has reached a point of being good enough. And finally, how a deadline can be a powerful organic tension. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. So when I was first developing this podcast and I was running it by people to get advice, you know, a lot of them were saying, oh yeah, that'd be great. You should get, um, really weird jobs. Like the people who milk snakes for their venom or, uh, (laughs) somebody who's like a, a kangaroo trainer. And I was like, no, no, that's not, that's not the vibe I'm going for. What I, what I want to do is show 
the interest value, the beauty in, in everyday work, you know, because I think everybody does something interesting and, and everybody has highs and lows at work. And so it's like this show is going to rise or fall, not on whether you find the snake milker interesting, but whether you find the welder interesting, the piano teacher interesting, or, you know, our first episode was about a stadium beer vendor. And I doubt there's a lot of people running around like, where can I learn more about stadium beer vendors? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but that's our job is to try to show you, you know, what's, what's lovely about that. I'm so fascinated. Like, where did this idea and inspiration come from? Because before I listened to the podcast itself, my first impression was like, oh, when I heard a quick one sentence description, in all honesty, it was like, oh, so kind of like dirty jobs in a way, right? You were like, I didn't even one know this job existed or two, what it was like. And now you've piqued my curiosity where I'm like, what is it like? But your show is completely different as as you're describing right now. Where did this idea, inspiration, magnet pull you into this this concept? Yeah, it's kind of like dirty jobs without the dirty is is the high concept pitch, I suppose. It's it's been rattling around in my brain for a long time. I think unusually nosy about what other people do. Like I remember this one time, I had a plumber come over to fix some problem with with the toilet, and uh, and when he was over, like I had all these questions that I was just dying to ask, like, do you get annoyed by people like me who are just completely clueless about the most basic mechanisms of our house? Or, or does that make us a good customer because we need you? Or uh, like, what's your favorite thing to do as a plumber? Like, what, what do you get excited about when you get to someone's house? And you're like, oh, sweet, they're having that problem. And, you know, he was he was talking smack about liquid plumber and how it doesn't really work. And so I wanted to ask about that. And I wanted to know about like, what was the grossest situation he ever walked into? And instead, I, I asked none of that and just kind of stood around and waited for him to finish up. But that's an experience I had a lot, you know, where I think in everyday life, there's a normal slash acceptable level of curiosity you're supposed to have about other people's jobs. And I found that that I had 50 more questions than that threshold would allow for. And so at some point, I just thought, wouldn't it be great to have an excuse to indulge this nosiness. And, you know, if somebody accepts an invitation to be on a podcast about the job, like I, I sort of have my opening to ask all those, all those pesky questions. So, so that was the origin. And then, you know, the question all along, you know, cause I, I write business books on the side. And so, you know, part of me is thinking like, is, is this podcast ever, ever going to be big enough to sustain itself and so the question that the people I talk to have always had is, are there other people in the world who are like you? You know what I mean? It's like, if I'm the only one who has this level of nosiness, it's going to be a very lonely endeavor. And so, you know, I'm, I'm four episodes in, so I don't have the answer yet. But this, this first month has been really energizing for me because I've started to get notes from people who, who do have the same curiosity. And I think they thought they were weird in the same way that I think I'm weird. And, and so maybe the, the weird people of the world can unite. It's interesting. Most likely, if you have a thought or an idea, there's probably millions of other people thinking that same way, right? Society has a funny way, and maybe not so funny, but of making everybody gray. And, right? and so the people that are curious to what you're describing really stick out. But it's like, wait, there's probably a lot of us out there. Maybe they're hiding behind these gray curtains or something. Has this innate desire for curiosity, for answers, has it as a child, were you the same way? Most kids are like, why is the sky blue? Why is this? Why is this? But you, what I'm gathering from what you're saying, most people lose that curiosity. You, on the other hand, have held onto it and have doubled down on the curiosity. Has that always been there? Has it increased over the years for you? You know, what's interesting is um, I think the short answer is no, it hasn't always been there. I, I think it came out of, you know, I, I briefly mentioned the, the books that I've written, some of them with my brother Chip, and they're all kind of loosely in the business space, like a book about making your ideas stick with people, a book about easing the pains of change. And as part of all those books, we go through a long research process where we're, we're kind of in the muck. We're talking to people, you know, how, how did you make an idea stick? How did you uh, make change in your business? And, 
And my brother and I have always been contrarian enough that we don't want to tell stories about the same five companies that everybody on earth holds up, like it, you know, Apple and Starbucks and what, whatever the flavor of the month is. So we're always pushing beyond to get to small business, weird businesses, manufacturing businesses in the Midwest. And so that process was kind of motivated curiosity. It's like, we're, we're panning for gold. We're going to talk to five people to try to try to isolate some practice or some piece of advice that they've found useful that we believe our readers will find useful. And I think in the process of doing that, none of this I don't think was conscious, by the way, it's just kind of looking backward. I, I think it just uncorked this new idea that what if you could just be free floating curious? Like what if there was no motivation? In fact, I just wrote a piece for the behavioral scientist talking about this experience and I described it as slow curiosity. You know, like when I was talking to the stadium beer vendor, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for a practical tip, you know, I wasn't looking for any reinforcement to anything I believe. I wasn't trying to, you know, have my tribal political views reinforced. I was just genuinely curious about what this dude does and what was it like? He, he was a stadium beer vendor for 40 years, followed the Baltimore Orioles primarily. He was working throughout the entirety of Cal Ripken's, you know, record-breaking streak. I mean, that's how long we're talking about. He saw World Series. He saw Super Bowls. He saw Beyonce play. I mean, this guy has seen so much. And the experience for me, I, I knew I was interested in this stuff, so I knew it would kind of scratch a curiosity itch. But I also feel like it's done something positive for my mental health in a way to just feel like unclenched maybe is the word that comes to mind. Like I, I'm just listening and I, I don't care where the conversation goes. I just sort of want to follow it. I mean, I imagine you feel the same way. Mm. I have brought on several authors and I've talked about this myself too. It is very therapeutic when I'm behind the mic and I have when communicating with these other authors, they say the same thing. It, it's my medicine. It's a, it's a way to keep me in the world that I want to be in, whether it's positivity or whether it's some sort of other mental health avenue or something completely unrelated. And it is interesting what you're describing here because you said it earlier, so many people go into a conversation with an agenda in mind. And I feel as if, from my perspective, that a lot of life is behind the scenes, already set up, already done. And then you're like, there was no authenticity behind that, right? And you talk about this in your book. Actually, I have it right over here and made to stick. There is nothing that really connects the other human being. And, and so I think a lot of people listening to podcasts or searching for podcasts or certain interview criteria, it's, is this an authentic conversation? Is this down to earth? Am I a fly on the wall between two humans just being humans with each other? And there is such a lack of that. I mean, even we don't watch a lot of TV in our household, but reality TV is not reality. It has never been. And so even the things that are supposed to be real aren't even real. Well, I, I remember when I learned that the celebrities that go on talk shows and tell these amazing stories about what happened on the movie set, like I remember when I learned that all that stuff is basically pre-scripted and it just, I was like, what? I thought that, you know, George Clooney was just a naturally brilliant storyteller. And I mean, they, they, they sort of know their marks. And so it's like, even I think what it means to be at the highest level of celebrity is that you can simulate that authenticity. <laughs> But but for the rest of us, I think we just have to go for the real thing. Well, it's even celebrities is a great point that you bring up there, or great example. How many people want to get the behind the scenes of their life? I can't remember what celebrity was on an interview, and people have asked him his entire career, what's your life like? What's your life like? What's your life like? And he's like, honestly, you're probably thinking that it's something crazy and lavish and out there like what I do in my movies, but... I'm just a human being. We hear the saying all the time, right? They get dressed, putting the same leg into the same side of the pants or however that saying goes. And they're like, I'm just a human being. I sleep in a bed. I wake up in a bed and I go about my day grabbing a coffee. But there are interesting points out there. Something that I learned in this ultra speaking course was around storytelling. 
right? And you talk about that and how you can find, you can build the best story in something that is so simple. One that I shared on one of my episodes was bringing the trash out from my house. Like how many times do we walk the trash out? Okay, how can that be an interesting story? And I framed it as this thing called the menu method. When you go to a restaurant, you have all these options. My wife and I like to go to a new restaurant every single week. That's our thing. We want to try something different. And there's so much freedom sitting down with this menu where you get to fill the desire of your taste buds. Like what on there is this mood that I'm in right now, right? And I love this concept of applying a menu method to your life where you get to live intentionally in life's smallest moments, standing in line at Starbucks. And maybe it is asking the barista like, oh, how many orders do you put together? That curiosity that you're talking about. And for me, I was able to, in many different ways, apply the menu method in my life. For example, taking out the trash on Tuesday mornings around 6 to 6.15 a.m. Still dark out, but you can see the stars. The birds are just waking up. The morning dew is on the lawn. There's this morning smell that's so distinct to that category, that time of day. And I remember before it was an inconvenience. Oh, I have to bring out the trash. I have to go down to the end of our driveway. It's this thing. It's this inconvenience. And I was like, well, wait a minute. What if I could make this a thing? What if I chose how I wanted to be in this moment? What this moment meant to me? It's not just running the trash out to the end of the driveway like it's a race and sprinting back in the house. <laughs> it is a moment to just be present, to observe this beautiful area that we live here in New England and take it all in. You know, we have an eight month old daughter, almost nine months, and it, it's a way to get some separation and some some time to just be planted on the ground you've given me uh something to look forward to when i take the trash out uh later <laughs> no i it's funny i was literally thinking about the same thing earlier today in slightly different terms but you know i walk every morning my routine is i go to this kind of coffee shop slash restaurant and and i have about a, a mile walk or so to get there and so on the walk i find that i'm like i'm just kind of mentally um not really frustrated, but just kind of in a, a slightly anxious mindset. Like I'm thinking about all this stuff I've got to do and there's pressure and I've got deadlines coming up and I'm trying to untangle some things in my brain. And, and I'm just kind of like just mentally sweating stuff. And, and for whatever reason, like during this walk, I just had this kind of counter reaction. You know, how you have these different, different voices in your brain, or at least I do. And so the other voice was like, you know, hang on a second. Like you, you literally are in charge of whatever you do today. If you wanted to, you could cancel all the calls on your calendar. You wanted to write a book and you made a deal with a publisher. You contributed to setting the deadline. Like basically everything that is ahead of you was, was your construction. If you can't find some joy and peace in that, like the, the problem is, is being concocted in your brain. It's not from the external world. You know what I mean? And I'm amazed at how much of my own stress and anxiety is just a function of my own generation. You know, it's not always true. I mean, sometimes there is stressful stuff that happens in the world, but but a lot of it is just an unforced error. What's that saying by by Seneca? We suffer more in imagination than we do in in reality. I think many of us find ourselves in in that position. You know, I just mentioned we have a, a young daughter, and I had just such a busy day the other day. It was like back-to-back -back meetings. I didn't get any time for myself. And I was in a similar position where I was anxious over what I felt in that moment, the lack of freedom, even though I built the prison around me, if you will, metaphorically. And our daughter was having a tough day too as well. And so I go upstairs, I pull her out of her crib, put her on my chest, and for a split second, I was there, this part of this beautiful moment. And then I could hear the clock ticking on the wall by her door. And it's not very loud, but in that moment, because I knew I had so much other stuff to do for the day, it became very loud. It was like, as almost if it was like flicking me or tried to persuade me out of the room. And I remember just feeling her heartbeat on my chest and thinking, wow, her ear is up against my chest too. She, she hears my heartbeat and it's probably really fast right now because I'm anxious. And here's this beautiful moment of connection. And 
I'm being anxious and worried about all of this other stuff that I have to do. In the grand scheme of things, is that really relevant right now to this moment? And the ultimate answer was, was no, right? I'm being a dad right now. I'm being, I'm in this, I get to be in this beautiful moment of privilege. And it helps me separate from that anxiety in the moment. But we all get caught in that turbulent riptide of anxiousness and all this other stuff that we have to do. And we either worry about the past or worry about the future, but never worry about the present, the place that we actually are, which is so ironic, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, as part of my self-improvement project today, I had a, I had a call earlier today that I wasn't very excited about. And so I was, no, gosh, I'm going to do this call. But I guess by virtue of that little epiphany I had on my walk, I was like, oh, hang on a sec. And I remembered this corny, I don't remember who had this advice, but it it was like, what if the next conversation you were going to have was going to be like one of the best of your life? Or, you know, what if this experience you were going to have is, is something you would remember for a long time? And I remember when I heard that, I was just kind of eye roll, you know, come on, who can be that chipper? And, but, but I sort of, uh, grudgingly went through this exercise. I was like, well, what if, what if this call was actually great? And and it was not, in fact, one of the calls I'm going to remember for the rest of my life, but it, but it was good. And I found I was in a better mood. And because I was in a better mood, it, it went better. And it was like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to take your, take your interview down this wormhole of like framing, but it, it just made me think like, how many times in life am I just kind of committing these unforced errors of like, because of the way I'm thinking about it mentally, it ends up worse than it needed to be. I've been in many of those moments, right? I I remember taking a really hard course and it was like a week left. I was like, uh, I just, I was so uncomfortable in the course, which was a good thing, but I remember wanting to like skip out on it, right? Like you were talking about it at the beginning with a podcast, you have to be very disciplined. How many times do we probably make that worse than it actually is, right? Is it really that bad or do we just think it's going to be bad so that that's why it gets bad or is bad? What if we could reframe it? You know, I talk about this a lot on my podcast, but perspective certainly matters and it's really easy and it probably, it's been tossed around a lot. So it's lost its weight and value and to some degree, but I think it means everything because I think if you can master being intentional and having a more thoughtful perspective on things, then everything else just kind of falls in place, right? Whether you're an author or you're a beer vendor or you're a podcaster. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we were talking uh, bef before we press record about just the discipline you've developed to do this podcast. And I've come to admire just the way that creativity and discipline can kind of reinforce each other. Like one of the episodes that's coming out of my podcast in a couple of weeks is with a mystery novelist. And it's just with this woman, Donna Andrews, who's written 38 mystery books. And they're kind of cheeky and, and playful there. There's like a subgenre that she's known for. But the, some of the titles are like, let it crow, let it crow, let it crow. They're always like bad puns, like birder she wrote. <laughs> so anyway, I'm talking to to Donna Andrews and she's talking about, you know, her her work is the product of imagination. I mean, it's compelling characters put in crazy situations. It's flights of fancy. And yet, if you look at what it actually means to do what she does, it's surprisingly workmanlike. You know, she wakes up in the morning, she has a spreadsheet where she has a, a quota set up for herself for the day. And it's like, she's going to sit down and crank out a thousand words, whether she's in the mood or not. It reminds me of years ago, I read Stephen King's book on writing, which is what, what a great book. And he has a quote in there that's something like, amateurs sit around and wait for inspiration and professionals just get up and go to work. And, and I think that that's what I mean by creativity and discipline can be you know, best friends or, or mutually supporting traits. And I just think that's a powerful thing where the, the repetition of the work makes you better at what might seem like something that 
you have to wait for inspiration to strike. You get to flex that muscle, that creativity muscle. What does that process look like for you? Obviously, you've published quite a bit of books that have broken over 3 million copies sold with your brother, Chip. What does a day look like for you? You just had said, you know, she was writing a thousand words a day. I mean, that's unreal. What does what your process look like? You've been an author for a while. Like, walk, walk me through that. Yeah. I'm in a book cycle right now, so this is all fresh in mind, and it can be very different at different parts of the process, but your listeners don't care about that. Anyway, right now, I block the morning for for creative work, thoughtful work, so that um, all the stuff I'm going to describe is the product of, of years of trial and error and, and realizing, hey, I work better when I do this than when I do this, but as I get older, I find I kind of, I've kind of got it down, you know, that I need... I need to start work first thing in the morning, creative work. Like if I, if I have a conference call or if I have 10 emails to return, it just harshes my buzz right out of the gate, you know? So it's like, I got to get to the coffee shop and think or do something hard or thoughtful and get in that mode and stay there. Like I've really got to keep my calendar blocked for the first half of the day. And then things get more normal and I come back to my office and I do the emails and I do the conference calls and whatever. And right now I'm working on a book that's about how do we learn to make quick progress uh, in life if we feel stuck? And I'm working with a team of three part-time researchers and I have absolutely loved that model because it creates a structure for me that's really powerful. Like every week I talk to each of the researchers individually for an hour. And so they've, in, in the preceding week, they've gone and you know, dug up some stories or interviewed some people or looked at some research. And so we have like a really fascinating hour long conversation where they bring me up to speed and we try to figure out what what's what's capturing our interest and what's not. And then we have a team meeting every week. And so it's almost like this, you know, back to the notion of discipline. It kind of forces me to stay on top of things and and keep moving things forward. The collaboration not only helps in the sense of, you know, helping me do more than I could do with my fixed you know, allocation of time, I think it also kind of supercharges my, I don't know, my, my sense of the whole or catalyzes my sense of, of where we could go or what's possible. Uh, and so I really, I, I really have appreciated that. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, check it off your list this winter with Babbel. Because with Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in just three weeks. This winter, you can start speaking a new language with Babbel. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are little more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. For the last few months, I've been learning to speak Portuguese with Babbel. Babbel's courses have helped me learn real-life conversation skills, which is something near and dear to my heart considering my grandmother is Portuguese. It's enabled me to have a conversation with her in her native language, and seeing her surprise and happiness is priceless. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. For instance, one study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. With over 10 million subscriptions sold, Babbel is real language learning for real conversations. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash motivated mind. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash motivated mind. Spelled B A B B E L dot com slash motivated mind. Rules and restrictions may apply. 
I want to pull the thread of you said you go to the coffee shop every day. Mm -hmm. Is that your creativity in environment for you to really pull out the creative pieces in your mind? Is the coffee shop that environment for you, removing yourself from your home or your home office? Yes, hundred percent. And it and it always has been. And and I think every every writer, every creative person is has some equivalent of that. And you know, some people it's they're appalled that I would do it in a public lab place like a coffee shop. Some people need silence and other people totally get what I'm talking about. But, and I think every, every writer struggles with this. It's like the eternal challenge of just getting in the pocket. Like, I don't remember who said this, but it's one of my favorite quotes. I don't love to write, but I love having written, you know, there's something very satisfying of, of having written something that you believe in and I really enjoy the flow state of writing. I know you've talked about flow on the show and, and writing is one of the, the most surefire ways for me to get in the flow state. The flow state is not, it doesn't mean you're like smiling and woohoo, I'm in the flow. You know, it just means you're absorbed. But, but for whatever reason, at least for me, it can be a real push to get going. You know, it's like there's some lizard brain part of, of my mind that, that just wants the quick payoff of sending an email or looking at the New York times or, you know, there's always something easier than getting yourself back into the thick of whatever you're thinking about and writing about. And, and so anyway, to chain back to your question, I, I think the thing for me is to come back to the same environment where I've done that 50 or a hundred times helps push me over that hump uh, in a really positive way. It's like the environment becomes a positive stimulus to my behavior and getting me where I need to go. And if I tried to do the same thing at home, it's like all of a sudden there's a whole new source of friction or something. So if you travel, are you then going into a coffee shop too as well? hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. And, and it's, and it's worse, right? Cause it's not the same coffee shop. So I think there's something particular right. about the environmental stimulus. Yeah. Have you always been interested in writing? Was there a certain age? Cause it's interesting. I love my brother, but him and I are total opposites. And here you and your brother have been so successful. Where did this come from, this idea or this fascination with writing? Was this always in you guys' DNA as, as kids and it's just blossomed from there? Or did you stumble into this? What, what was that like? I, I think I've always been interested in writing. Like One of my earliest memories is, is writing a story about a super tooth. My parents still have this in you know a file drawer somewhere. Super Tooth was a tooth that was a superhero. And your question reminds me, I have a friend, Becky Margiata, who talks about um, people's zones of genius. And, and she, often, she often talks to people about trying to isolate what their genius is. And, and one of the things I find helpful about her, her construct is she distinguishes it from a zone of excellence, where she says, a lot of times what happens in life is you're good at something, and people spot that in you and they farm you more of that work, right? It's like you're you're good at kind of digging through spreadsheets to find crucial insights. And they're like, oh, Dan's good at that. Like give him some more of that. They, they pat you on the back. They give you rewards. You get promoted. And all of a sudden you kind of wake up and you're like, well, wait a second. Just because I'm good at it didn't mean that's what I wanted to do or that's what gave me satisfaction, and, and she calls that the excellence trap where it, in, in a weird way, like being really good at something can backfire in, in the big picture when, when you think about, you know, what you want out of life. And so one of the ways she helps people distinguish genius from excellence is to look back in their childhood. And in the same way that you asked, it's like, were there signs in your childhood that you were interested in this? And it's so funny because I spent most of my 20s basically trying to suppress the instinct that I wanted to write because I just not thought it was a very impractical thing to want to do. And, you know, I'm never going to get a good job doing that. And so I did a hundred different things. But, you know, with Becky's prodding, it was like, I mean, I look back at my school experience and I just have to laugh because I can think of a hundred times when I went out of my way to write. It's like I was always on the school paper and I was always entering essay competitions and I was writing stories in my free time. And it's like right there in front of my face was the evidence I needed to know this was something really important to me. But sometimes we can get trapped in our own head and what's the best job I can get rather than the best job for me and on and on and on. Becky's lens of, of looking for the clues in your own upbringing, I think, is a really powerful one. 
Hmm. Why did you think that writing couldn't couldn't make a living from this? Were you just young, naive, or did it go slide into your point that you were just saying where people were pushing you in a different direction? And so that was the inevitable thought. Well, like, well, I'm I'm not going to be able to make any money out of writing anyway, so it's fine. In my defense, I'm not sure I was totally wrong about that. I mean, it is it is a really <laughs> hard way uh, to make a living. And the only reason I'm doing it now is because Chip and I just had like an, an enormous stroke of fortune that opened the door that it, it's like if, if my daughters wanted to write, you know, 90% of me would be like, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you satisfied, like, yes, 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 let's throw gas on the fire. And then 10% of me would be a little bit worried, like, but man, you got to know, you got to know what you're getting in for. It's just, uh, it's a, it's a very competitive space. And when people ask me for advice, it's like, uh, you know, part of me wants to be the cheerleader, go for it. You can do anything you want. And part of me wants to be, you know, let me just set your expectations. It's, it, you know, any, any creative work is, is hard, to, hard to bust into. This might be a, a somewhat, people ask this question, but let me f- try to frame it a little differently. Through all the work you and Chip have done, is there any part of it that you're like, man, I wish we went about this different? Because you just said it. You guys have built something really special. You have a course on Udemy, over 1,500 students in that course. Your books have millions of copies sold. You do public speaking. There's been so much that has been born from this ecosystem that you and your brother have built. Is there anything about it that you're like... I mean, we all have our regrets, right? So I'm talking more like high level strategy level. Is there anything there that you're like, I wish we went down this channel and obviously you have plenty of time to, to do that. That's a good question. What, um, what are the big career regrets? I, I think, I don't know what Chip would say. I don't want to speak for him, but I, I think for me, it's probably almost the opposite. It's almost like the things not done. Cause I think we both had such a maniacal focus on the work. It's like, we wanted the work to be great. We wanted it to solve problems for people. We were obsessive about that. And so when, when something kind of slightly off the beaten path, a partnership idea, or, or at one point, somebody was talking about a TV show. And, and I think our, our instinctive response was always to kind of scowl at it, you know, because <laughs> it was like, well, we can't get distracted from from our core work. And like, we really, we don't need a workbook. We don't need an, an online course. We don't need this. We don't need that. And so I think most of that was probably a good thing that that we, you know, stayed focused on on what our core mission was. But I think at the margin, it probably made us say no instinctively in times when maybe a yes would have been the better answer. For both of you, seems like, I don't want to say perfection, but obviously you strive to to deliver on that goal, that intention every day that you just described. When is the book ready? When is the thing ready for you guys, right? When do you know, all right, I could do a million more, we could do a million more edits on this. Obviously you have deadlines with the books, but for you personally, how have you detected? All right, that's enough. Putting pencil down, step it away. Yeah, that's a hard one because you're right. I mean, it's like there, there's always another draft that's possible. You can always, you know, take it from 94.6% to 95.8%, you know, and it's hard to not do that. I think it's when we sense we're we're into the zone of diminishing marginal returns. It's like it takes us a long time, years usually, to get, you know, our books are typically built around frameworks. Like if you want to make your idea stick, like here here are six things you can do. Or and my most recent book was called Upstream, How Do You Solve Problems Before They Happen? And I have a series of questions you have to get answered. And and so it takes a long time to get comfortable that the core simple frameworks we're advising are evidence-based, that we have good stories to tell about them, and that people can use them. I mean, that's the ultimate test is nobody reads my books on the beach. You know, it's not like I'm competing with John Grisham and Stephen King. Like people read my book because they want to do something better. And so that's the test is it, it doesn't matter if I have good stories. It doesn't matter if I like it. It matters if people can pick up the ideas in the book and do something with them. And so the hard part is getting to the zone where we have evidence that people can read our stuff and, and 
feel like they've made improvements using it. And so it takes us a long time to get there. And then we iterate from there, try to make it better, try to make it better, try to make it better. And at some point we get to a stage where it just feels like, you know, we could spend three more months trying to make it 0.1% better, but, but the heart of it is there. And, um, for whatever reason that, that has not felt particularly hard. Like I, I, there are much more painful parts of the process than like closing it out, I think. What are those painful problems? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm writing a note for myself for my future interviews. Ask the painful parts question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the the most recent couple of books, the most painful part has been finding the right framing. So this particular book that I'm on now started with a radically different uh, frame. And and I don't know whether it's a it's a virtue or a curse that that I sort of allowed myself to to completely rethink that. So uh, so I think the book that's that's published will be on, and I, I'm not just talking like different title. I'm talking like different topic. It's about probably the third or fourth iteration of the topic. Oh wow! And and so that was that was painful. I mean, I I wrote a thirty five thousand word manuscript for one of the intermediate topics, just as kind of a, a trial to get people's hands on it to see if they liked it. And I think about eighty percent of that is just going to be thrown in the trash can, and that's that's painful. <sighs> Wow. That's the painful part. <laughs> uh, that That's the knife. Yeah. I'm assuming that it, it varies. I'm so unfamiliar with this publication writing world, even though I've brought on quite a bit of authors. What does the timeline look like? Obviously, it's varying depending the book or I'm assuming the deal, but who defines that? Is it the publisher? Is it you? Is it your agent that you have? Is it a collaboration of all three parties? Is it more? Is it you and your brother? How does that get laid out? Yeah, I think, and I bet this varies a lot. So this is just one one data point. But uh, for the last few cycles, basically, in the proposal that that you submit to publishers to try to you know get a deal, you propose a timing like we'll deliver the manuscript by X uh, with an eye toward publication. You know, six to ten months later or whatever. And then the publisher can kind of bless that and run with it, or they may counterpropose something if they think there's a better window for the launch or that sort of thing. But yeah, it's a, it's a product of negotiation between the writer and the agent and the publisher. And does that ever itch or chisel away at your creativity, knowing that, that there's this impending deadline? Or are you so used to it now at this point that you're like, really doesn't bother me at all? No, no. I, I think a deadline is is an artist's best friend. I mean, I, I think the, the, the deadline is the source of organic tension. You know, I, I will say with this current book, because I knew that I was only, that I was a little squishy on the topic, I didn't go get a book deal right away. Like I wanted to make sure that, that the topic was cemented before I pitched it to somebody. And I'm really glad I did that, obviously, because it changed three times. But once I landed on this most current framing, that's when I went and said, okay, it's time to, it's time to get the deadline working for me. And uh, I, I don't know, maybe other people feel differently, but I love a deadline. It, it is like all positive pressure from, from my brain. Mm, I, I did this with myself. I was doing one podcast episode a week since 2018 and then two, two and a half years ago, I asked myself, could I do two? And so I started doing two. And something about my podcast episodes when I'm not doing an interview, um, they're all scripted. So I write eight to 12 pages of a script for every Whoa. episode that's around 20 to 24 minutes. So I have felt a lot of what you're sharing here today between deadlines, between getting in flow state. Wait, so you, you were saying wow about um, Donna Andrews' thousand words a day, but you're doing more than that. I mean, that's like, what, four or 5,000 words a week or something? Yes, but... It's bulleted form, so it's not really a full page of like words, right, if you will. And I have specific points in there where I stop or where I should, you know, emphasize a certain word, right, or bring someone through a story. But it is a ton of work, and I think a lot of people underestimate podcasting, even if you're not doing them scripted, right? Even if you're just doing interview style like your podcast – it's a it's a lot of work. And for me, it's not only the environment, it's reminding myself why I'm doing the podcast, right? Because of my best friend, because of his suicide. And that 
has an interesting way of opening up the creativity door. And I also always have to listen to this app called Brain FM. No, they're not a sponsor or nothing like that. They have certain music to stimulate creativity. And they have a lot of, they have some studies on their website that show the activity in their brain compared to if you listen to Spotify or even white noise and how their noises are specifically made for either relaxation. You can pick different categories. And so I have that cranking in the, not cranking in the background, I'm not listening to like heavy metal music, but that really helps too as well. But pushing myself to do two episodes, it was, it was really hard because I, I didn't want to compromise quality in lieu of quantity, right? Like I just didn't want to do two more episodes to do two more episodes. I, I wanted to push myself to see, can I actually do two episodes? Can I do two episodes a week that are quality and still resonate with the audience, still get into these emotional storytelling pieces within the episode? And oh, it was so hard. It was so hard. Are you still doing two a week? Yep. So even through my daughter being born. I can't believe you're able to sustain that. Uh, yeah. Ever since the podcast 2018, I've never, ever missed an episode release date. And then when I switched to an, two, two and a half years ago, I don't remember the time where I went to two, I've never missed a release date Monday or Thursday, 1 a.m. Eastern every single time. And do you have a, do you have a team that supports you or like, is it? Not, not for the podcast itself. So I do have someone that books guests for the episode and that does some of my admin work too as well. We have editor for the podcast interview episodes as well as some social network editors too for some of our social network content. But when it comes to the podcast itself, writing the content, I don't have anybody read it over. I'll read it out loud to my wife beforehand mm -hmm. to see what she thinks to get her perspective. But I can tell when it feels good. And it feels right. Or when I listen back to it, I'm like, I could do that differently or I could do that better. Or I take courses like I was just telling you the ultra speaking course. How can I become a better storyteller? How can I pull that musicality through to my voice and the audience? How can I be more authentic? And so I have a document that's always up when I'm writing my scripts of my authentic voice. Who is Scott? What do I like to sound like? What do I want to express? And I make sure that as I write through the script, I'm sticking to that voice every single time. I'm not varying off. And at this point, it's just, it's become part of my everyday life. And how do you know, like when, when you've nailed it, like across your last 50 episodes, like do a couple stand out in, in memory? And if so, why? Yes. So if I feel goosebumps or emotions, if I'm telling a, a story, right, if it, it was, I think I told the story about my daughter being on my chest that I just shared with you on one of my episodes. And that felt so real, just like you, you were saying with your show, what it's like to be right. That's when I feel I've nailed it because I know people on the other side are like, I can relate to that. And when you get comments and messages back from people, like you were saying with your show, that it's moved them, that they, you know, thought differently about life and opportunity and didn't take their own life. I'm like, Man, it makes me it makes me tear up that one people are in that much pain, but number two that you can impact someone's life by just speaking through a microphone. Someone to ten where wherever across the world can be affected, and that drives me. And the download numbers are you know they are where they are. I did a, a breakdown of Atomic Habits, and that episode blew up. Uh, I think it's my highest downloaded episode to date. It's got I think over sixty thousand downloads. Wow! But that one didn't feel as authentic because I was breaking down a book that someone else had written, right, with their frameworks and providing them with all the credit. But it's like I could be that person that just passes along information, but do I really want to be that person? Is that what I want the podcast to be about? And so the download numbers are such a small metric in the grand scheme of things. Like, was it my authentic voice storytelling? Did it give me goosebumps? And can I imagine other people listening to it, extracting those same things? And if someone reaches out and said, I listened to the podcast episode three times and took notes, I'm like, or hey, that really hit a note with me. You know, I lost my best friend or I thought about taking my own life. I'm like, all right, I know I'm on the right path. And so we all veer off our path. And that's a great, some guiding, a compass for me uh, every week. 
Well, Dan, I, I want to be super respectful of your time, your most valuable asset here. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't dug into? I don't think so, but I've enjoyed the chat. Good. So have I. Kind of leave you off this note. I want to thank you for dedicating 45 minutes, 48 minutes here today. Thank you for jumping on camera. I will certainly make sure that we don't share this. Thank you for that. Is there anything I could have done better as a host or during this conversation? Oh, wow. This is, this is something I can learn from too. No, I don't, I don't think so. I, I enjoyed it. The thing I appreciated was you're clearly dialed in. I mean, you're in for the conversation. I remember I was on doing book publicity a couple of years ago and I had an interview on a pretty big podcast. You'd recognize the name. And, and the host was like, we weren't on camera, so I couldn't see, but I could, I could just tell. I mean, he was multitasking the whole time. It was, it was like, he would ask a question and I would tell a story or something. And then there would be this long pause and he'd be like, yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah. And then he would just read like whatever the next question was on his list. And it was just like the worst, you know? So it's like, why, why do this if you're not in it? And so I appreciate the fact that you're in it. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into crafting authenticity and creativity with Dan Heath. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Motivated Scott. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Episodes. I love you all and thanks so much for listening. Motivated Mind is a legacy division.